Today's passage is taken from Isaiah 45. That can be found on the Church Bible on page 732. Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to lose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that the gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exhorted places. I will break in pieces the door of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and horns in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there's no other. Besides me, there's no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west there's none besides me. I am the Lord and there's no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heaven, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strive with him who form him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. Ask me of the things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hand that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all the hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you and they shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you and there's no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Saviour. All of them are to put to shame and confounded. The maker of idols go in confession together. But Israel is saved by God with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it empty and formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there's no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth and I I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to God that cannot save. Declare and present your, your case. Let them take counsel together. 
Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was this not I, the Lord? And there's no other God besides me, a righteous God and a saviour. There's none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the earth, ends of the earth. For I am God and there's no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. This is the word of the Lord. Tracy, thanks for reading. Please do make sure you've got sight of Isaiah 45. We're going to be working through it together. And uh, let me lead us as we begin in prayer. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Father God, thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that you continue to speak in your word. Uh, Please help each one of us rightly tremble. Uh, Would we behold Christ, uh, see our need of him and turn to him? In his name we pray. Amen. How can we trust someone when they say everything's going to be all right? Everything's going to be all right. Maybe we found ourselves saying just those words to a family member or a friend. It's all going to be okay. We might have been on the receiving end. Someone else tells us all will be well. Even politicians seem to be getting in on the act, urging us to trust them and they'll deliver. They'll get us out of whatever mess the other party got us into. But when someone says all will be well... How can we know we can really, really trust them? Well, you need to know two things, don't you? You need to know someone's in control, and you need to know they're good. It's terrible having someone who's in control, but is evil. We can see wild dictators force their will on others. But it's also no help having someone who's kind and loving, but has no power to do anything. We need someone who's in control, and who is good, who's loving. And this morning I want us to see one simple truth, but one of the most pivotal principles we can ever lay hold of. We need to trust the Lord, who alone rules all things for the good of his people. And we need to trust the Lord God, who alone rules all things for the good of his people. Isaiah tells us loud and clear, the Lord God is ruling history, he alone is. He's doing it all for our good, and his glory and so every single person on the face of the planet should trust him now there's our thesis there's our outline you'll see it on the sheet but let's look at how Isaiah persuades us now firstly we're told the Lord sovereignly rules history he alone is the one who raises up world leaders so just look with me again to verse 1 page 732 Isaiah 45 verse 1 Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you 
and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Now, even if you hated history at school, maybe you've just done your history GCSE, it is still vital that we know when all of this is happening. You see Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus becomes king of Persia in 559 BC. Uh, Ten years later, he becomes king of Media as well, 549 BC, and then another ten years, king of Babylon, 539 BC, as his empire grows and grows. Isaiah's already talked about one from the east whom the Lord will stir up. And now we have him named Cyrus. But here's the vital thing we need to know. Isaiah is writing at least 140 years before Cyrus even emerges onto the world stage. With astonishing levels of detail, God says exactly who he's going to raise up and how he's going to advance. I don't know about you, but I struggle to control what I'll do later in the day, let alone let a, uh, far less in a year's time. Obviously, none of us can specify exactly what will come to pass in 140 years' time. I mean, who predicted the pandemic? Maybe one or two scientists might have warned us about it. Who knows precisely how AI is going to pan out? Uh, people long to know what the lottery numbers will be or what's going to happen to the price of oil, or whether they'll get seriously ill. Here is the Lord God saying, decades in advance, he's going to take this chap, Cyrus, and nations will just wilt before him. So verse 2, loosing the belts of kings means they're defenseless, they have no weapons. Doors will fall open before Cyrus, even their treasure chests will be handed over to him. And it's exactly what happened. And when he arrived at Babylon, there wasn't even a fight. He just waltzed in. And that God would plan these things is staggering. Just, just think how much it would take to work everything out. Every single facet of history has to be under the Lord's sovereign control to make sure that all these events come to pass, even down to Cyrus's name. And it's not just that God foreknows what's going to happen. He actively brings it about. So it's not simply knowing the lottery numbers, it is causing the numbers you want to drop into place. God grasps Cyrus well in advance. And then what makes this even more remarkable is God's using a pagan to do all of this. That God would use Cyrus seems madness. Shepherd, that term at the end of chapter 44, anointed at the beginning of chapter 45, they are titles for the royal line of David. But God is using them for a Gentile king. For God's people listening to Isaiah, it must have seemed outrageous. This wasn't the way things were supposed to be. And God anticipates this feeling. So he says, verse 7, I am the Lord who does all these things. You see, although the Lord knows Cyrus by name, it's clear Cyrus doesn't know the Lord. So halfway through verse four, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there's no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. When Cyrus wins all these victories, he praises other gods that are no God at all. He is an idolater, but God can use even him. 
Uh, currently in room 52 in the British Museum, sits the Cyrus uh, Cylinder. It was found in the ruins of Babylon in 1879, but was from when Cyrus conquered Babylon. And Cyrus uh, is clear who he thinks is in control. Just listen to what he says on the Cyrus Cylinder. See if you can work out who Cyrus thinks is the real king. I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, mighty king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four quarters of the world, the son of Cambyses, great king, king of Anshan, grandson of Cyrus, great king, king of Anshan, descendant of Tyspis, great king, king of Anshan, of an eternal line of kingship, whose rule Bel and Nabu love, whose kingship they desire for their heart's pleasure. He is someone not short on self-confidence, is he? But it's also clear he is not a worshipper of the one true God. And yet the Lord raises up Cyrus, a pagan. God is utterly, totally, sovereignly in control. Some years ago now, there was a country music song called Jesus uh, Take the Wheel. Maybe some of us have heard it. Now, whatever you make of the song, the Bible tells us plainly, he already has the wheel and actually everything else in the universe. Jesus, who is God incarnate, is in complete control. He is ruling in power. I imagine not many of us will have heard of Polycarp, not the name of a fish restaurant, but the first recorded Christian for being killed, for following Jesus outside of the Bible. And there is an account of his death. And just listen to how the author describes when his death came about. Now, Polycarp was arrested by Herod when Philip was high priest, when Statius Quadratus was proconsul, but when Jesus Christ was reigning forever. It's a lovely little thing to put in your history books, isn't it? Uh, The Lord God is ruling all of history. It is the same today as it was in the 8th century BC and the 6th century BC and every century there's ever been. Uh, But coming back to Isaiah 45, that the reason Cyrus is so important isn't because he's so powerful and impressive. It's not because he's a, a pagan king, as shocking as that is. It is because he's part of God's plan to rescue God's people. Years before God's people are even taken into exile, God has already sorted all the necessary arrangements for them to return from exile, even using a Gentile ruler. So secondly, this morning, the Lord rules history. He raises up world leaders for the salvation of his people. It is all for their good, and his glory. Did we spot all the little purpose statements we get in this chapter, verse four? For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, there's no other. Besides me, there's no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is doing all of this. He is ruling all of history so that he is made known and particularly so his people can be confident he's in control. His salvation purposes are writ large on the pages of history. So look again with me to verse 13. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. 
Uh, This is all being engineered so God's people can return home. And indeed, Cyrus ends up sending God's people back to their land in an act of diplomacy. He even funds the rebuilding of the temple. He thinks he's doing what he wants. Isaiah tells us he is doing God's bidding, even if he doesn't know it. And to God's people then, the idea of using a Gentile ruler to rescue them seemed to be an embarrassment. Even today, people still think it's a gotcha statement when they say, well, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, then why is there suffering in the world? Now, we mustn't be trite or glib in our response, but the Bible does have an answer. God is all-powerful. He is in complete control, even over evil, but it is all for his good and loving purposes. So verse 7, if you look down again, it is... Uh, Far from being an embarrassment, it is a profoundly reassuring truth. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these things. Just imagine how terrible and terrifying it would be if God wasn't in control of disasters. If there's no one at the steering wheel at all, it is horrifying, isn't it? And what flows out from verse 7? Verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above. And let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. God rules all things. He can even use evil for the salvation of his people. Just imagine with me a father. And every day he takes his son upstairs to his room, always at the same time and deliberately causes him physical pain. He makes sure never to miss a day, there's no respite for the son. Sometimes he even makes his son cry out in anguish. We might rush to think this is an abusive father, a horrible man causing pain to someone he's supposed to care for. But then we discover he's injecting his son with medicine. In fact, the son needs the medicine to grow, to flourish, to live. It still hurts to be injected, but knowing why, knowing the purpose, changes everything, doesn't it? Actually, it's describing me. Uh, Precisely because I love my son, because I want good for him, uh, I inject him, even knowing it causes short-term pain. It is evil, if you will, for a good, loving end. How much more will a perfect all-loving, all-powerful God be able to use bad things for good, loving purposes. God can use a pagan conqueror like Cyrus to bring his people back to the land. And now God is never the author, the originator of evil, but he is still in control. And he can even use the worst evil for the greatest good. What do we read in Acts 4, verses 27 and 28? For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And the cross shows us most vividly God using evil for good, for the salvation of his people. But knowing God is in control, knowing he's ruling all of history for the good of his people, doesn't mean it's always easy. 
And in verse 9, we begin to see one wrong response emerging. Verse 9, woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making, or your work has no handles? Woe to him, he says to a father, what are you begetting, or to a woman with what are you in labor? It's as if Israel is saying to God, you're not allowed to use Cyrus. That's not the way things are supposed to, to be. You're making a mess of things, God. But it's unthinkable, isn't it, for the pot to turn around and challenge the potter or for a newborn baby to start questioning its parents. We have no right to tell God how to run his world or how to work out his good purposes. Genuine, honest questions are fine, they're healthy. But critical, arrogant accusations are unacceptable. No, for God to be God, he must have the right to do things his way. Only he knows the end from the beginning. Only he knows all the details of his plans. Only he is blazingly holy and unswervingly, unstintingly loving. God alone has the right to rule all things this way, doesn't he? Verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the works of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. Paul, the Apostle Paul, picks up verse 9 in his letter to the Romans. And it reminds us that it is a lesson God's people have to keep learning again and again. Romans 9, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? You see, the more we understand not only that God is ruling all of history, but why, to what end, for what purpose, the more we'll be freed up to joyfully, willingly trust him. And it brings us on to the right response we see in verses 14 to 25. Now, the Lord God alone is ruling history, all for the good, for the salvation of his people. So all the earth trusts the Lord alone. Cyrus, did you notice, moves into the background now as Isaiah looks forward to a day when the nations will be lining up, just desperate to be part of God's people. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. It might not be immediately obvious, but the you in verse 14 is referring to God's people, probably to Jerusalem. It is a plural you. The nations recognize the Lord God is the one true God. But what then does verse 15 mean? Truly you're a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Well, it could be God hides himself from those who reject him. That's the contrast in verse 16, isn't it? All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. Or verse 15 could be how God operates off stage, uh, behind the scenes in world history. The way he works isn't in your face. 
To most people, Cyrus sweeping across the known world wasn't the work of the Lord, it was just life. He, he could be hidden in that sense. But God is certainly not hidden from his people or from those who seek him, verse 17. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. God has made himself known. He is infinite, but he's not inaccessible. The problem we have isn't God's communication, but our confusion, verse 16. You see, by nature, all of us are idol worshippers. We're all tempted to trust anything and anyone but God. So verse 20, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. And declare and present your case, let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none besides me. Have you ever thought about what we're tempted to trust instead of the one true God? Isaiah says it's idols. In fact, it's always idols. An idol is by definition something in the place of God. And you can have your personal idols in the Bible. People have their household gods. And you can have your national idols, Baal and Asherah and so on. And it is just the same for us. We still long to put our trust in things that seem more real, more tangible, more in control. It could be personal idols, my career, my education, my family, my wealth, my comfort. As someone's helpfully pointed out, idols are very often when good things become God things. They're not bad in and of themselves any more than a lump of wood is a bad thing. But when we think they can offer security or meaning or joy or comfort or salvation or life, then the wheels have come off. And there are still also the national idols, aren't there? Maybe a sports team or secularism. Islam in some countries, materialism in the West. Intolerant tolerance that seems to be one of the biggest idols at the moment. You can say whatever you want as long as you don't say someone else is wrong or even worse, a sinner. It is just the same today as Isaiah's day, even though the idols may have changed. And so we need to know the same truth that Isaiah proclaimed in his day. In his day. There is only one God who can save. Perhaps we notice the repeating refrain reminding us of God's uniqueness. Verse five, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. Verse six, there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 18, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 21, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me and so this chapter ends with a crescendo it is the only logical conclusion 
Verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I've sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me a righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. One Sunday on the 6th of January 1850, a 15-year-old boy found himself in Colchester on his way to the local chapel. But it was snowing so heavily he just turns down the side lane and comes to a small Methodist chapel. There were about a dozen or so people present. Even the minister hadn't turned up because of the weather. It was the wrong church, the wrong congregation, the wrong weather and the wrong preacher. Into the pulpit steps a shoemaker or a tailor and he announces his text as Isaiah 45 verse 22. In the King James Version it reads, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. Uh, the, the, The boy wrote later on about the preacher, He had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text and there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. I remember how he said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A child can look. However weak, however poor a man may be, he can look. And if he looks, the promise is that he shall live. The preacher managed to spin that out for 10 minutes and then running out of anything fresh to say, looked at his congregation and picked on the boy. Young man, you look very miserable and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you will be saved. And then the minister shouted at the top of his voice, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, 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 you have nothing to do but look and live. And so writes the boy, I did look. Some of us uh, may already know that this boy was Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest uh, preachers of the 19th century. Uh, God sovereignly overruled to make sure he was at just the right place, at just the right time, to hear this good news. I wonder whether you've obeyed verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. You see, for anyone to look to God today, we need to look to Jesus. What do we read in Philippians 2? Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do the apostles preach in Acts 4 verse 12? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is where Isaiah is pointing us, isn't it? We've already mentioned today is Mission Sunday, and Isaiah is giving us a missionary message. The command coming from the throne of heaven is universal in its scope, all the ends of the earth. And yet it is intensely personal in its application. Every knee, every tongue. And it contains a great imperative. This news must be proclaimed. 
The eternal fate of men and women everywhere depends on it. This is a word that goes out. One writer says, in the final analysis, the vision of Isaiah is a profoundly missionary vision. See, as we read on, we'll discover God raises up his servant Cyrus to preserve his servant Israel so that in time his suffering servant son will come from Israel to rescue his people and achieve full salvation. Isaiah 45 tells us we can know for certain God is in control and he is in control for the purpose of saving a people for himself and bringing glory to his name. And so the only right response is to trust him and him alone, not idols, not ourselves, not anything or anyone else but Jesus. And because Jesus alone is the name by which we can be saved, because every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess he is Lord, we must proclaim his name to the ends of the earth. It is a logical, a moral imperative. And it's why Isaiah is appealing In the first instance, the nations won't hear these words. They're they're written to God's people. And so God's people need to make him known so all the ends of the earth can turn and be saved. Today there are millions upon millions of people who know nothing of Jesus Christ. We were hearing something of this, weren't we, on uh, Friday night. Uh, Central Asia, one of the neediest parts of the world, what was it, 7,000 Turkish believers in a population of 80 million, is that right? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none besides me. Jesus alone can save. Will we make him known? But maybe Central Asia seems too far off. Right now loads of people are sitting exams and many of you have to learn a language. Could it be the Lord has sovereignly ordained for you to study French or German or Spanish or Italian or whatever language? Precisely so that you might be able to go to that country and tell people about Jesus. Who else is going to go? Or if even that seems too much, what about our neighbours and colleagues and family and friends? Will we tell them everything really will be all right if only they put their trust in Jesus Christ? Turn to me. And be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Let us pray together. Father God, we thank you for this glorious gospel word. We thank you that anyone can turn to Jesus and be saved, even the ends of the earth. Thank you that you alone are God. Please, would each one of us um, turn to Jesus and would we proclaim him confident that you are ruling all of history for our good, for our salvation and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.